Thank you to the band for leading us in our praise and worship this morning. Um, as I mentioned earlier, our speaker this morning is Danny Crooks. Um, Danny is a member here at Crescent and is one of our regular Bible teachers. Um, Danny is beginning our series looking at the book of 1 John, and his title this morning is God's Life Revealed. So we look forward to what you have to share with us the rest of the service. Danny. Well, thanks for your introduction, Alex. And can I welcome you, especially if you're a visitor uh, here this morning, just on the subject of engagement and marriage. Uh, Tony and Julie, that uh, many of you will know, uh, will be going back to China soon and will be getting married there in August. <clears throat> there must be something in the water. <laughs> so as Alex has said, we're starting... Uh, a series over the summer looking at the book of 1 John, if you're following it in the Black Pew Bible, it, chapter one is on page 1021. But let me ask you a question. If God created the world we live in, then what can we tell about God by looking at the world? When you look at all the different types of life, animal life, there's birds, fishes, there's plant life, trees, and at this time of year, the colors are amazing. When you think of life in this world, there's life that we can see, but there's vast amount of life that we can't even see. It's so small uh, and hidden. But there's so much variety so many different types of life, so many ingenious ideas as we look at how each creature or plant is designed. So much color. Not only is there life, uh, but given the color, for example, we seem to have been made so that we can appreciate it and enjoy it. We've got color vision rather than merely grayscale, uh, black and white vision. We can see the evidence of what God has done in creation. We can hear it. We can hear the birds sing. We can feel and taste and smell so much of what God has done. And if the world that God created is so bursting with interesting and beautiful types of life, then that tells us something about God. God could not be a boring person. He could not be a person who just sits all day and does nothing in particular. He is bursting with ideas, bursting with life, and overflowing with life. And he has designed us to be able to appreciate that. And when Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world, he revealed three key things about God, which this book of 1 John will talk about. He came to reveal in perfect detail what God is like. Jesus is God in human flesh. One of his closest friends was John. And John and Jesus were close friends and lived and worked for several years together. And John is the same person who wrote the gospel by John. He wrote the gospel of John. He wrote three letters. We call them 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote the last book of the Bible, 
Revelation. So as I mentioned, over the next two months, we are going to be looking at the first of these three letters, 1 John. And this morning, I just want to work our way through different sections of that first chapter. Now, when the Lord Jesus walked this earth, people saw many aspects in him of what God is like. John was struck by three things in particular, three things which he said are revealed or were manifested, to use an older word. Three things which this world had never seen until Jesus came. And there are three things in particular which are unique to God. And John begins with the first thing which we're going to look at this morning. So let's read how he begins his letter in 1 John chapter 1, again, page 10, 21. And this is going to talk about the first thing that Jesus revealed. This is what John writes. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. That phrase, the word of life, is referring to the Lord Jesus. In his gospel, he refers to Jesus as the word. And he says, this is what he saw. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now, there are some words which appear several times in that, which will give us the emphasis of what he is talking about. The first thing which John saw in Jesus was that Jesus revealed the very life of God himself. God's own personal life is called eternal life. Eternal life is not just life that lasts forever. It's the original life of God himself. And Jesus was the embodiment in human flesh of the life of God. And when John claims that he saw this, it's almost as though he doesn't expect us to believe him. So he says several times, I'm telling you, he said, I saw it with my own eyes. I heard him, I watched him, I even touched him. So the story of Jesus is not just a nice story that has been made up by some clever philosopher. John physically saw him. He heard him. He touched him. Jesus was real. And above everything else, John saw that Jesus had God's own life, eternal life. It was an amazing revelation, something this world had never seen before. God's life in a human body. It made a big impact on John. But there was something even more radical about Jesus, which had an even greater impact on John. And it was what Jesus came to bring. And John wrote a whole book, his gospel, about this. So let me pick out a few references from his gospel to show what Jesus came. To bring, and he came to give us the life of God. He says in chapter 10 of his gospel, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. He says um, 
at the end of his gospel, this is his reason for writing his gospel, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, this is the purpose, you may have life in his name. So what amazed John about Jesus was this, not only did Jesus have God's life and reveal God's life, but he came to give us God's life, eternal life. God's life living in a human body. And that's what being a Christian is. Christian is not someone who is good or nice or who has a particular religion or set of beliefs. A Christian is someone who has received from Jesus eternal life, God's own life. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you have eternal life? Do you have God's own life living in you? Now, maybe you're a Christian and you're thinking to yourself, well, I became a Christian, I trusted in Jesus, and I try to live for God. But if you ask me, do I have God's very own life living in, you, in me? Well, I'm not sure what would be the signs of that. What does it look like? What difference does it make in a person's life? And if you're not a Christian this morning, then you're maybe asking that same question. Well, what difference does it make to have eternal life? How can I receive eternal life? And we'll look at these questions later. But before we get into that, the next step in John's thinking, in the next two verses, will be to answer another important question. What is the purpose of having eternal life? What was the purpose of Jesus, God's Son, coming into this world to give us eternal life? Well, John explains his purpose in verses 3 and 4 as we work through our chapter. This is what he says to, you, says to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We, may, we write this to make our joy complete, or as some versions have it, to make your joy complete. Now, you notice that word fellowship occurs twice. It's a key word. What is fellowship? <clears throat> well, it's, it's an active working relationship, not just a friendship, but working together, actively being involved with each other. So it's more than friendship. Now, let me give you a little illustration, a feeble illustration from life. Let me introduce you to Tara and Murphy, <clears throat> two dogs which my brother used to have. And I remember visiting them uh, and meeting them. Now, some dogs can be very good company. They will greet you enthusiastically when you return home. They can show you affection and loyalty. You can take them for walks. And in a sense, a dog can be a good friend. We have a saying, a dog is a man's best friend. But there are limits to our friendship with a dog. Suppose you come home from your work after a difficult day. You flop down in your chair and your dog sits in front of you with his tongue hanging out, looking up into your eyes and you say to your dog, Murphy, I had a very difficult day in work today. 
Why are some people so difficult? Do they not care about doing their job well? Have they no sense of purpose in their lives? And your dog will look at you, but your dog has no idea of what a sense of purpose in life means. All the, 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 your dog wants is perhaps food and going for walks. That's the limit of his or her understanding of purpose in life. And even apart from the language barrier, <clears throat> you just can't share some deeper things in life with a dog because it has no capacity to understand things which it can't see. And the problem is <clears throat> that we have human life, which is far superior to the life that a dog has. We have human life with all its depths and riches, richness, but the dog only has a doggy life, a dog's life. And because we don't share the same type of life, we can't share a deep, meaningful relationship. In that sense, we can't have fellowship with a dog. <clears throat> now, let's raise that one level. God would love to share with us a deep, meaningful relationship. He wants to share his thoughts with us, his plans for us, his ideas for us. He can't share his innermost hopes and thoughts. Natural human beings just do not have the capacity to understand God's thoughts because we only have human life, whereas God has his own life, eternal life, a superior type of spiritual life. So the only way that it would be possible to, for us to have a, an active working relationship with God is if we could somehow be given God's life, eternal life. And that is why Jesus came into this world. He came to give us life so that we, as John says, could have fellowship with God, so that we can understand God's thoughts as we read them in the scriptures, as uh, he helps us in our day-to-day -day lives. Now, if that's God's plans for us, the next obvious question is, why are we born without God's life? <clears throat> I mean, if God wants us to have this life, why could he, we not just have been born with it? And to understand the answer to this question, we need a bit of history, and we need to go back to the beginning of the human race, to our first ancestors, Adam and Eve. We read about them in the, the sad story of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve were first created, they were able to have a close relationship with God. God had designed the beautiful Garden of Eden, and he put Adam and Eve in it to look after it. So they had a working relationship with God. And God used to come down each evening and walk through the garden and visit them. And they could share what sort of a day they had had with God. God could ask them about their plans for the garden that they were looking after. And God mentored and developed them as they shared their life with God. <clears throat> but then the devil entered the scene. And he told clever lies, lies about God and about God's plans. And these lies deceived Adam and Eve into distrusting God. 
They thought they could have a better future, a better life, if they became independent of God. So to assert their independence, they disobeyed the one law that God had given them. And that's what the Bible calls sin, disobeying God. And when they turned against God, something drastic happened within them. Something deep inside them died. And when our first ancestors disobeyed God and sinned, they died to God. And that's what God had warned them. What did that look like on the outside? What does, what does it mean to be dead to God? Well, let me give you another little illustration of what happened. Flowers are beautiful things. <clears throat> and for some reason, giving someone a bunch of red roses is regarded as a particular expression of love. So don't do it by mistake. Now, I don't mean to ruin the pleasure that you get if someone gives you flowers, but it is a fact that the moment you cut a flower from the plant that produced it, the, pl the flower dies. Its future is to wither, the petals will fall off, and eventually the whole bunch will be thrown out. Now, guys, I I wouldn't advise you to explain this to your girlfriend on your first date. <clears throat> Don't say, dearest Elizabeth, as an expression of my undying love for you, I would like to present you with these dead flowers. <clears throat> they are eventually going to become decrepit, just like us. <laughs> but let's enjoy the moment for now. <clears throat> that scientifically accurate approach tends not to go down too well. <clears throat> So a cut flower, it has no means of sustaining its own life. You can put it in water to slow down the process, but it has already died. And everything that a rose needs to grow and to blossom comes through being connected to the rose bush. And when our first ancestors disobeyed God, decided to live independent from God, they were cut off. They had cut themselves off from the source of their spiritual life, the source of who they really were, and all they had left was mere human life. And the result of that was that they no longer had the life of God in them, and since they did not have God's life, they, no they could no longer have fellowship with God. And so their relationship with God had been destroyed. In fact, it was more than their relationship, but their very ability to have a relationship with God had been destroyed. And since that time, all the descendants of Adam and Eve have been born in that same state. We are all born in that state, having been created to share the life of God, but having lost it and living independently of God. What are the effects of this damage in our lives? What does it look like? Sometimes people seem happy to live without God. They think it doesn't make any difference whether you're a Christian or not. So much of life, even professional life, seems just the same whether you have a relationship with God or not. And from the outside, 
there are times when that can seem true. But the difference really shows up when we do something wrong. Have you ever done anything wrong? Ask your wife or your girlfriend, and they'll quickly tell you. But I think you can all remember times when you've done something wrong. And to use the Bible's word, it's when we sin. And it's the way that we respond when we do something wrong which shows up whether or not we have a relationship with God. So let's just go through some points about how sin damages and destroys fellowship. It's the nature of all relationships that sin destroys trust in a relationship. If two people are married or going out together and one of them is unfaithful and has an affair with somebody else, that destroys the relationship because the other partner doesn't know can they ever trust you again. And there are several reasons why sin destroys, in particular, our relationship with God. Firstly, when we do something wrong, we feel guilty. That immediately puts a barrier between us and God. Even atheists feel guilty. And we have an inner conscience which keeps reminding us of what we've done. It keeps accusing us. It's a horrible feeling. We don't need uh, to be taught to do this. Because the second point, the second way it shows is uh, that often when we know we've done something wrong, we live in denial of it. And again, even children do this. Maybe a child goes into the kitchen, you hear a terrible crash as they smash a bowl or something. The mother comes into the kitchen and sees the broken bowl and the child standing there and the mother says, did you do that? There isn't another person within 100 yards. The child says, no, it wasn't me. I didn't do that. It's just an instinct of denial that's in us as humans. And that's another barrier to having fellowship with God. That when we do something wrong, we not only feel guilty, but we are very quick to deny it. We find it very hard to admit, even to God, that we have done wrong. That's exactly how Adam and Eve reacted when they disobeyed God. They, had, they knew they'd done something wrong. Then they heard God coming in the evening. And what did they do? They ran away and they hid from God. And that is another response which shows that we do not have eternal life. That when we do something wrong, we feel guilty, we maybe deny it to others and even to a certain extent to ourselves. But inside, we hide from God. And people can hide from God in different ways. One common way is just to deny that God exists. It doesn't work with a child and its mother. But sometimes children even close their eyes and pretend that they can't see what they've done and think that somehow if you close your eyes, it'll go away. And some people do that with God. They just close their eyes to the evidence and say, there is no God, I can't see him. That's one response. Does that solve the problem? Well, of course not. That's hiding from reality. 
Other people might say, well, there may be a God, but I don't like the God of the Bible. I don't like a God that has moral standards and expects me to, to keep them. I prefer a God who is not judgmental. And that response is creating in our own minds whatever sort of God we want. And that's another way of hiding from the truth about God. Another way to hide from God is to say, well, I'll think about it when I'm older, but I want to have my life first. And then when I'm older, I'll maybe come and think about God. That's another more subtle way of running from God and running from what we know we should do. And what's the end result of all this? These different ways of hiding from the truth? Well, it's what John is going to go on in the next few verses to describe as living in darkness. Now, darkness is something that generally people do not like and people are afraid of. But there are some creatures that feel more secure in the dark. And when we live, for example, if we make up our own God or we try to deny that there is a God at all, we're relying entirely on our own imagination. And that's often what people who do not have the truth about God, who have never heard of Jesus, that's what they end up doing. They invent their own idea of what God is like. So the Greeks had their whole system of gods. The Romans had their gods. Um, religions across the world often have idols, which is their imagined view of what God is like. And it's like being in a completely dark room, wearing sunglasses uh, in the middle of the night, and you just, you're subject to your own imagination as to what else is in the room. But living like that is simply evidence that you do not have the life of God. You do not have eternal life. And this is what John talks about in the next two verses. <clears throat> because he's going to show that living in darkness is not compatible with having a relationship with God. John writes this in verse 5 and 6. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. God is light. God knows everything. He shines if like he can see everything that's going on. And that can be an uncomfortable thought if you're trying to hide from God. God knows where we are in life. He knows what our concerns are, what our hopes are. He knows our inner motivations. He knows even the reasons why we can be reluctant to come to him. And God, there is nothing hidden in God. God is utterly transparent. And he wants us to be like that too. So living in darkness is not compatible with having a relationship with God. So what is the solution? How can a person who is living in darkness, who does not have eternal life, who does not have a personal relationship with God, how can they come to enjoy God, to share their life with God? And John ends this chapter by describing uh, the solution in the next three verses, describing how it's possible for a person who's in darkness to step into the light. He says, but if we walk 
in the light. As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in, it, in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. So how, well, he says um, then, um, if, how do we step into the light? He says, if we confess our sins. One of the most common sins, as we saw, is to want to live independently of God. And confessing our sins to God, we don't have necessarily to do it to one another. But if we confess our sin to God, that means we need to stop denying that we need God. We should not live in denial, even denying that God exists. We need to recognize he exists, but we need to tell him that we have been running away from God in our lives. We need to stop cutting ourselves off from God. And then he says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. What does he mean by the blood of Jesus? Well, blood in those days was evidence that someone had died. So here John is speaking of how Jesus died on the cross for us. And when Jesus died, he was completely innocent, <clears throat> but he was being punishment by being punished for our sin. He died to pay the penalty for us and for our sin. And he did that so that we need never feel guilty again. We should never fear of being judged because he has accepted the judgment himself. And if we trust Jesus, that's why he is able to forgive us completely and to give us eternal life. We no longer need to live in denial or to run away because we feel guilty. And because he, has give, he will give us eternal life, we can now have fellowship with God as the human race was originally created for. And in that sense, Christ's mission has been accomplished. We can share God's life, not just in this life, but for all eternity. In fact, God's plan goes beyond that because God not only forgives us, but as John says, he will start a process to purify us from our sin. And uh, that purifying us involves changing our character, making us more like God himself, and preparing us for a greater future in the world to come. Now, this process of stepping into the light, it doesn't happen by accident to us. It doesn't even happen gradually. You won't sort of wake up one morning and find yourself a Christian. It requires a conscious decision. It's not difficult, but it's something that each individual must do for themselves. So let me just end by asking you that question we, we raised at the start. Do I have eternal life. Even Christians can sometimes doubt this. Maybe you say, sometimes uh, I feel I am a Christian, but then when I do something wrong, I wonder, am I a Christian? But the sign of eternal life is not 
that you never sin. The sign of having eternal life is how you respond when you sin. Do you run away from God or do you run to God when you sin? Because if you've accepted Christ's forgiveness, we know that if we come to God, he will welcome us and reassure us of our forgiveness and restore our side of our fellowship. If your answer to that question, do I have eternal life, is no, then perhaps you need to consider making that conscious decision to step into the light. Let's just take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for explaining to us this morning the mission of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who came into this world to restore us to eternal life so that we could have fellowship and a meaningful relationship with the God who made us. Thank you that as part of that process, the Lord Jesus gave his life for us so that we might never fear of being punished for our sin. Thank you for all that he has done. And we pray that each of us, whether we're Christians or not this morning, would respond to your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Danny, for pointing us this morning to Jesus as the one who reveals God's life and then restores us. Um, we're going to close our service by singing the words of Light of the World. This hymn explains uh, the incarnation of the Lord who reveals God's life to us, but also our response to it. The opening verse and then chorus of this hymn says, Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with you. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. So here we are to worship. So let's sing these words of praise now. And after we've sung this hymn, our service will be over. Thank you.